Hi everyone, this is the Hard Landings Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. We are a podcast about commercial aviation disasters and how they have made flying safer. And we're from Colorado. Like, we're actual natives of Colorado. Yep. Well, were you born here? Yes, I was. Okay, so we're all actually, like, we were born here. Yep. I was inundated with aviation as a kid. My dad's always been an AMP mechanic since I was born, and I've been around aviation my entire life. Uh, every job I've had in the industry has been in aviation. I mean, in my working career has been in aviation. I am a music educator. I am currently working on my degree to teach tiny children the musics. Uh, and I don't have any background in aviation, but I do have an ad- extreme addiction to watching documentaries and researching about air crashes. And flying. And f- Well, and flying, yeah. I just, I'm addicted to it. I literally have watched an entire season of Air Disasters in like two days. No joke. No, yeah, no. That's seriously, like, I came over here to sit with these two, and they were like, oh, we're going to watch uh, episode four. And I'm like, I already finished the season. <laughs> they were like, seriously? So I'm just... Like, Along for the ride. Yeah. Like, I just love it, so. I, on the other hand, though I don't have any aviation experience, I do have a mechanical engineering background. Um, I have my bachelor's in mechanical engineering, and I'm currently working on my master's. I will hopefully graduate with my master's in mechanical engineering come May 2020. Um, And I, I just want to absorb more and more information about anything and everything. And air disasters is a very cool topic um weird and morbid but that's true yeah i'm also a true crime junkie so that's... me too which is probably why we love this so much it's a morbid curiosity but like it's actually applicable to your life yeah it is I, i've always felt it's very educational i think nobody should be afraid to fly these days or travel and we're super avid travelers for that reason fun fact uh, I don't even know if you two know this. When I started traveling with you, which probably I think was back in 2017, 2016, one of those, I was terrified of flying. I didn't, and I had barely been in a plane, to be fair. I'd been in a plane like three times, and I was so scared because I had barely ridden in a plane, and I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. And then after, which it may have been like a year or so after we started doing trips consistently, I got more comfortable because we did trips consistently, but also because I started watching air disasters, air, air disasters like so yeah. much and being like, oh, okay, I'm fine. Like, I'm, I'm good. And we, so. want, we want all of you to have the same experience where we teach you, like, this horrible thing has happened, but here's what the aviation industry did to prevent it from ever happening again. Now is the safest time to fly. And a lot of this came from the fact that I'm a super av geek. I geek it's out his about fault. I geek out about it's everything with aviation. And I, I I told him I was like, I think there's this series, man, you would really like it. I think you'd you, and as soon as I introduced them to air disasters and the whole idea of like watching air crashes and reading about them and stuff. They just ask me questions all 
the time about it. And I, I mean, I think it's great because it teaches and it's, it is super educational. It is an industry that learns from itself like no other. If you guys have any questions come the end of this episode, please contact us on our social media. We'll have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat somehow. You can also email us at info at hardlandingspodcast.com. Welcome. Welcome. Hi, everybody. <laughs> it's the first episode, finally. We've been working on this for quite some time. And we're finally there. All right. So, so what air crash are we doing today, Nick? So today we're just going to jump right in on uh, United Airlines Flight 232. This is uh, by far and away probably one of the most talked about and covered incidents, but uh, we felt that it was not covered correctly most of the time, and we need to do it justice. So that's what we're here to do today, and uh, this will also get you in touch with our uh, system and how we will structure everything so hopefully you uh you like it and can give us some feedback after this episode all right on july 19th 1989 296 people boarded united airlines flight 232 at denver stapleton international airport bound for philadelphia with a stopover in chicago stopovers are not very common these days southwest airlines is really the only one that does that anymore where it keeps the same flight number right it keeps the same flight number and continues on it's not very common anymore. Most airlines will make you switch between flights at their major hubs. So like Chicago's United's place. So they would have like taken everybody off. And even if you were getting on the same airplane to go to the next place, has a different flight number. Southwest is the only U.S. airline that carries the same flight number all day. Uh, the aircraft was a wide body, which means it had two aisles. It is a Douglas DC-10. 10. 10. Might add, there's a subcategory of also 30. It's a bigger version of the DC-10. This was the original version. It's 18 years old at the time. In economy, it was set up in a 252 configuration, so two seats on the left, five in the middle, and two on the right in each row. And then in first class, it was 222. Uh, the registration number of the aircraft was November 1819 Uniform. Registrations are like a license plate in aviation, and in the United States, we use an N as in November as the signifying basically symbol for the United States and a United States-based airplane, United States-based uh, registration. Flight was due to depart at 1.09 Mountain Time, and it did so. That's 2.09 Central Time. You'll understand why that's important here when we get into the actual incident. The flight has three flight crew members in the, ca- in the cockpit. You had Captain, uh, which is the pilot, left seat. That's Alfred Haynes. He was 57 at the time. He had 29,967 flight hours at the time. That's a lot. Of which he had 7,190 in the DC-10. That's also quite a bit for one type. That's, like, that's a lot. Most people could only dream of having that much experience in one airplane. First officer, or co-pilot, also in the right seat, was William Records. He was 48 at the time, who... Uh, estimated that his log time was about 20,000 hours. And I found that really interesting because an estimate is not normal, especially for airline pilots, of log time. I mean, you, you usually know based on your log book, but something must have happened to his, either in this incident or who knows. But he only had an Probably estimate. Probably in this incident. Probably. But he only had an estimate of 20,000, uh, of which he had 665 
as the first officer in the DC-10. So, he'd been in there for a while, but not that long. Way more time than I would ever spend in a DC-10. No, most people, <laughs> most people don't spend $665 you know, hours doing anything. That's, that's a lot of time doing anything. Yeah. Um, second officer, or flight engineer, who sits behind the first officer. This is a very uncommon position these days. Uh, his name was Dudley Dvorak. He was 51 at the time and had 15,000 flight hours. 33 as second officer in the DC-10, so he was pretty new. He'd probably only been doing that for a pretty short amount of time. But that doesn't mean much. As a, When you're an engineer, it's pretty similar from plane to plane, and I think he was on the 727 before that I read. Yeah, I think he was. In which case, pretty similar. Trijet. Three engines. And uh, that's a position that we really just don't have in aviation anymore unless you fly a really old airplane in probably another country, because in the United States, all the DC-10s still flying. I've gotten rid of the flight engineers. They're all updated. They have enough information provided to the... The pilots. The pilots, basically, they get... They have a computerized flight engineer. It's a position that doesn't involve any controls of the aircraft. It only monitors the engines, the electric, the hydraulics, all of that. So that'll clarify a lot of things later, because that's pretty important. Uh, all three were required to wear glasses uh, for farsightedness which was never really mentioned or portrayed in anything I've ever seen. Nope. So Negatory. That was pretty interesting. I mean, it's kind of... It's like pretty major detail when you start talking about aviation. It didn't really apply to anything here. But still, I mean, that's one of those things like you don't really think about, but it's a requirement in aviation. If you have one or the other, farsightedness, nearsightedness, got to have glasses. And they all had them. Let's talk about some notable passengers. Seated in 5F was Dennis Fitch. He was United Airlines DC-10 check pilot. Uh, he was actually on his way back from work. He was working at the training center in Denver, uh, where they still do all their training, as a matter of fact, uh, which is home for us, by the way, so this is also a local thing. It's kind of cool. That was part of this. But uh, he was doing uh, some work here in Denver at the training facility. And basically, as a check pilot, that means he gets to train and check off all of the certifications for pilots on the DC-10 type for United. There were also a ton of kids on board. He, there was a sale, United was having a sale on kid seats for a penny, as long as they were flying with an adult as well. So that's something that, you know, we don't ever see in aviation anymore. It's pretty crazy. But that meant there was a lot of kids that day. It also meant the flight was very full. 296 is a lot of people to be on one plane from here to Chicago. Uh, in addition to that, there were four lap infants, which are two years or old, two years or under. Those are also, they have to be accounted for on the manifest, but they're accounted for a little differently because they don't need a seat of their own. Flight departed Stapleton. And everything was smooth sailing for the first hour or so. It was about an hour and seven minutes. While a meal was being served to the passengers at 3.16 p.m. Central Time over Iowa, the aircraft entered a scheduled bank to the right over Iowa, and passengers and crew heard a loud bang from the back of the plane, followed by vibrations and shuddering of the plane. It was a pretty alarming thing. Uh, yeah. Everything's just... It's... 
It's also extraordinarily rare that something happens at cruise flight. They were at 37,000 feet when this occurred. And that's... Horrifying? Yeah, pretty horrifying. I mean, you're just relaxing. Probably half of everybody was probably asleep at that point. Although it was a middle-of-the-day flight. And loud bang, and all of a sudden everything seems to be a little amiss. And that's just in the middle of cruise flight. Normally things happen on takeoff or landing. It's pretty common. I just think if I were to be on that plane and you hear a giant boom, and then you're like, okay, um, something just happened. I don't know what just happened. I'm going to die. Like, that's instantly... <laughs> and, uh, like, this is... Instantly, I'm... This is death. Yeah, well... Death is and, happening. And the reason why is because, you know, we are huge geeks, right? And we've done... We've watched a bunch of documentaries and stuff. So instantly, if it's anything like apart from turbulence, it's like, oh, panic, sh- panic. oh panic, no, panic, panic, panic. I am going to die. <laughs> I mean, I guess like for me, I always told myself it's like, yeah, but I have no control over the situation. Like, yeah, of course it would freak me out, but it's like, now what? Like, you're going I'm, I'm to die. Pass- <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I'm a passenger. Like, I can't do anything about it. I'm just sitting in my seat. I don't have control of the airplane. Now, just whatever happens, happens. I mean, the only thing I've got control over is, like, do I brace? Do I not brace? That's up to the flight crew to tell you. Well, yeah, but then you could still say, like, nah, I don't feel like it. <laughs> it's probably oh, not a good nah, idea, though. They're telling me to brace, but I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going like, to sit and not you brace. You know, just, like, get whiplash. <laughs> anyway. Anywho. So the shuddering and all this loud bang came from the back of the aircraft, which originally a lot of people first thought it was a bomb. It was not necessarily as uncommon as it is today to think of bombs on airplanes, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but that was what a lot of people thought. There was quite a few incidents during the time that alarmed a lot of people, and so they thought there was a bomb on board that went off. But at the back of the aircraft, uh, since it's a trijet, is the number two engine in the tail. Number one is on the left, two is in the tail, and three is on the right. Uh, They read that way in the throttles as well. Basically, it's a quick way for the pilots to determine uh, which engine to pull if they need to. From left to right, the same way you'd read a book. It's just intuitive. It's just intuitive. You pull the engine uh, from left to right, whichever one's giving the problem. The flight crew immediately noticed that there were bad readings from the number two engine. They noticed that they were getting a lot of failures and uh, they were losing power quickly to the number two engine. Captain Haynes elected to pull back the throttle, uh, meaning to cut engine power, uh, as well as fuel, and and that pretty much shuts the engine down completely. Uh, This turned off the engine. Vibrations stopped immediately, and so there was a relative sense of relief immediate after that. But flight engineer Dvorak observed loud, out loud during that process that all hydraulic pressure and fluid levels were zero. That's a big problem. This meant that they couldn't control any parts of the aircraft. Pitch, roll, yaw, any of the flight control surfaces were not functioning. And this is pretty amazing considering that the DC-10 has three hydraulic systems, each are separate, and they were never intended to all fail. But that's for later. To clarify, in layman's terms, P-51 
pitch is going up and down with the nose. Roll is pretty intuitive, tilt left and right. And yaw is if you held the plane flat and rotated the face left or right. So it's kind of like if you're standing still and you just decide to turn around 360 degrees, you don't tilt or roll or any of that. You just turn around. It's the same thing. That's what yaw is with an airplane. All the motion, all of this motion was impossible because all the control, all of it is controlled by hydraulic fluid. Uh, and tubes that are changed, that change the pressure to move panels outside the plane. The fluid was all gone, so moving levers in the cockpit does nothing. All this was confirmed by the first officer because the plane did not come out of the scheduled turn as it was supposed to. It continued banking right and got even further into that bank. I think eventually they got to somewhere in the range of like 50, 60 degrees, which is pretty significant. That's more than most airliners would ever get to. Captain Haynes took control of the plane and reduced thrust on the left engine to bring it back to level. Having different outputs to the wing in wing engines is called asymmetric power. So increasing one basically pulls that wing up. You increase lift underneath the wing. Decreasing the other decreases lift on that wing so you can bring the wings back to level. It's a pretty smart move on his part thinking quickly while he needed to and brought that airplane back to level. Crew attempted to use their the air-driven generator, ADG, to bring back the number one hydraulic system using an auxiliary pump, but that didn't work either because there was no fluid to begin with, and that's a big problem. That only would have worked if it was just the pump that was bad. Right, but it wasn't a problem with the pump. There was no Little fluid. Little did they know... There was nothing that to be pumped. There is nothing there <laughs> I mean, to pump. They knew, but it was worth a shot. Well, yeah, like, shot. just to have that extra, like, hopefully this works, and then be like, oh, well, I guess. Panic. Oh, Panic. no. We're just a giant glider now. Yeah, but not a great one either. No. At 3.20, the crew radioed the Minneapolis Air Route Traffic Control Center and asked for emergency assistance and directions to the nearest airport. At 322, Air Traffic Control, or ATC, informed them that the best option would be Sioux City, and the flight crew proceeded to enter the vectors for the small airport. Not that that did much, since the autopilot was useless without hydraulics. Nothing like saying, hey, go to the airport you're sort of pointed at, and here's all the ways to get there. And they're like, eh, we'll figure it out. That's pretty much what we got. We can't just make the turns you told us to make easily. They did quite a few 360-degree turns almost unintentionally because they didn't have any control. So there was a couple of them that they needed so that they could drop enough altitude to get to the airport, but the airplane was dropping on its own anyways. We can post a map of their route and all their... Unintentional 360s. Yeah, we'll post the uh, map provided by the NTSB report. On our blog at hardlandingspodcast.com. Go visit it. There's lots of cool stuff there now. And a good portion of the stuff we mentioned in this episode will be up on the website for all of you guys to see. So All our photos and sources. The flight crew made an announcement over the PA system telling everybody what had happened with the number two engine, pretty straightforward, uh, and called the senior flight attendant, Janice Brown, to the cockpit, and at which time they instructed her to prepare for an emergency landing. 
She dispersed the word to the other flight attendants relatively calmly, uh, one of which told the captain about Dennis Fitch, who was seated in 5F, being a Czech pilot. The training Czech airmen sitting in first class, of course. That was nice of them. The captain summoned Fitch to the cockpit immediately at about 3.29. Fitch then re-entered the cabin to visually inspect the wings, where he noticed that the ailerons, which are control surfaces on the wings that control roll, were slightly up, which would only happen if they had no hydraulic fluid behind them and were being pushed up by the air pressure underneath the wing alone. Captain Haynes had Fitch take control of the throttles, so he and the first officer could focus on the inoperable flight controls. Fitch attempted to use engine power to control pitch and roll by changing how much power went to each wing engine independently. For example, if he put all the power in the left wing and none in the right, it would bank right. To keep the airplane level, he had to reduce both engines even further, which means that they were constantly descending. The plane was also experiencing what is called a fugoid, where it was slowly oscillating between rising and falling. This was happening in a cycle of about 60 seconds. This is because the wing underneath, the wing basically gets a high pressure on top, or a high pressure underneath, sorry, and a low pressure on top, and that high pressure underneath increases as airspeed increases. So the airplane would drop a little, it would increase the high pressure underneath, the airplane would pick back up, and then it would slow down, that high pressure would decrease, and it would begin to nose over again. This was happening about every 60 seconds. And that's pretty quick, honestly, but also alarming when you're in the cockpit, or if you're a passenger and you're just constantly in a wave-like motion. A lot of people probably got sick from that. They don't mention that anywhere, though. One thing that's not mentioned many places is the fact that uh, Dennis Fitch actually had experience doing this maneuver with the throttles that he was doing because just a few years earlier, Japan Airlines Flight 123, which we'll cover in another episode, uh, was another flight that was completely uncontrolled with no hydraulics or anything, and so he, having the opportunity to test this in simulators in Denver, he spent his some time trying to see if he could control an airplane without hydraulics. And he had actually put himself to the test doing this, and so he actually knew some of the physics and the understanding and the feel for what it would be to take control of an airplane without hydraulics just using engine power. So that was pretty fortunate. So, okay, I have a question. Yep. Because I've watched one documentary on this. Yes. And so clear this up for me. Did they ask him to come into the cockpit, or did he ask to be taken to the cockpit? So at one point, basically, when he noticed that things were a little off with the control surfaces just outside his window, and he knew that something was up, he mentioned to the flight attendant, saying, Hey, I'm, I'm a Czech airman. Let me know if there's anything I need to do. And they did the right thing and informed the flight crew that he was there and on board, and it was then that Captain Haynes said, yes, bring him into the cockpit. So they summoned him to the cockpit. Yes, yeah. that would okay. be the final answer. Because if anybody has watched, and maybe it's that way in more than one documentary, but the one I watched, he went to the cockpit to say, hey, I'm a pilot, can I help? Which yeah, no, clearly, that's, that's, yeah, that's not that, what happened. That's not how it Because you, you can't, even, like, nowadays, of course you can't do that. But 
I found it kind of interesting that they portrayed it that way. Right. When in full on reality, the pilots asked for his help. Right. Yep. It was, it's true that it was a lot more lenient back then. They would let people into the cockpit relatively regularly, but it was still a relatively controlled thing. I mean, when the airplane was in situations like that, they were probably completely shut out from the rest of the airplane. They wouldn't ask anybody normally. This was a pretty unique case. Pretty Even lucky. Pretty lucky. But nowadays, it's basically unheard of. It's it, it, Not sure they would open that door for anything, honestly. Probably not. Okay, thank you. Please continue. <laughs> At 3.42, the flight engineer went to the cabin to inspect what he could see of the tail and elevators, where he saw clear damage to the horizontal stabilizer that keep the plane horizontally level. These are at the very, very far rear of the airplane, and they look like two small wings on either side. Are they Are they on the tail? Yeah. Yeah, they're on the tail section. Okay, so there was damage to the actual tail of the aircraft? Essentially. Well, the well, horizontal I guess there's stabilizer. Ha- there'd have to be if there was something wrong with the number two engine. Yes, there was damage to the horizontal stabilizers, which basically control pitch of the aircraft up and down. They had too much weight to land in Sioux City, so the crew dumped fuel until they were left with about 33,500 pounds. Still a lot of fuel, but that was enough to get a controlled landing of the airplane, if they could even pull that off. They dropped the landing gear at about 349. They dropped the landing gear using just gravity, since they had no hydraulics. And they actually debated about this for a little while, about there's two backup systems for dropping them. And they couldn't decide what would be best, but they eventually decided to use the gravity-driven method, and they weren't sure if it would lock into place or not. Luckily, it did. They also weren't sure if it would cause control issues or if it would actually help them control the airplane better. Because it's drag. Because it's drag. So ultimately, it actually helped the airplane stabilize a little bit, and that was to their benefit. And the landing gear did lock in place, so everything went very fortunate there. ATC had intended for the plane to land on runway 31 at Sioux City, which was about 9,000 feet long, and told all of the emergency crews to park on the closed runway 22. However, the flight crew radioed in and said that they were too low to land on 31, also they couldn't maneuver to line up for 22, or it's for 31, but they were lined up for 22 as best as they could as it was. So all the emergency crews had to book it off the closed runway and run on over to 31 instead. During usual landings, the crew employs flaps and slats to increase the area of the wing, making it easier for them to maintain lift at low speeds. Of course, these are controlled using hydraulic systems, so they were without them. This meant that the plane was coming in very hot, very fast, in both speed and descent rate. Planes normally touch down at a descending about 300 to 400 feet per minute, lateral speed of about 150 miles per hour. 232 was coming in at about 250 miles per hour and 1,620 feet per minute descent. In the last 10 seconds of flight, the plane started to slowly oscillate and pitch and roll because even at the high speed relative to a normal flight, it was too slow to maintain control in the current configuration. At about 100 feet above the runway, the nose began to drop along with the right wing. Both the captain and first officer called for, the, for reduced power on short final approach. The Czech airman, using the experience he knew, 
the power would have to be used to control the descent, still manipulating the number one and three engines the whole time. His experience with this came from a prior incident, Japan Airlines 123, which happened in 1985. At 4 p.m. on the dot, UA-232 touched down slightly left of the center line on runway 22. But first contact was not the landing gear, but rather the right wingtip. And then the right landing gear. This Uh-oh. caused... Yeah. <laughs> Bad. Uh-oh. <laughs> this caused the plane to break apart, roll, ignite, and cartwheel before coming to rest and several very large pieces scattered throughout cornfields around Sioux City Airport. When all was said and done after the fires were put out, people were pulled from the cabin left and right, wherever they could be found. There were 111 fatalities, 47 serious injuries, 125 minor injuries, 13 none at all, which is absolutely amazing, bringing us to a total of 296 people. It's pretty crazy, all things considered. I mean, that 13 people weren't even injured at all. So how many survived total? So 185 people survived this incident, which is pretty crazy. It's more than half. We will post up the photos and videos, if I can find all of that, onto our blog. And you will see just how insane that actually is, considering what happened to them. So I know this this isn't supposed to come up, I, I think, until Christy's part of the episode. Uh, So I'm going to ask you this question because it's bugging my brain and I need to ask it. So I remember from the documentary that I watched that the flight attendants were very, very upset with how they had to tell people to brace their children. Does that come up in your... It comes up in Nick's part when it's about um, what changes are made to the industry. Oh, okay. So... I, okay. I mean, okay, so we can talk about it briefly. Briefly, but to, and forgive me if I'm wrong, right? Back then, the, uh, what's the word? Brace position? Well, the brace position that you'd have for, like, the lap children would be pushing them against the floor, right? Yep, they're on the ground. Yeah, so you push them against the floor of the fuselage while you're crashing, yeah. Yep. And obviously that puts to mind horrible, horrible images. Of... Yeah, it's a horrible idea. Yeah. It's horrendous. Ultimately, yes. So, and I, we'll get more into that later, apparently, but I just, I, I remember that and it's just so sad. So what happened during this crash, I, I don't know if all of them did, but I think most of them lost control of their children and they went flying during the crash. Yikes. I don't think... None of those children survived, did they? Do you know? Three of them did. Three of them Three did. Three of them did? Three of the four Amazing. survived. Wow. Yeah. Um, one of them actually was pulled from the wreckage by another passenger who had escaped already, had escaped the fire and the blaze, and heard a child crying. He went back into the burning fuselage amidst the really toxic smoke, grabbed the child, and escaped. Wow. Good for that person. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Good Samaritan. I don't know this guy's name. But all good credit to that guy. Yeah, for real. <laughs> yeah. You just saved someone's kid. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, please continue. All Sorry. Right. One of the craziest things about this, honestly, is that there happened to be a training exercise at the airfield, and there was actually 285 trained Air National Guard on duty at the airport at the time. So they had way more emergency personnel than they needed, 
But that was a really fortunate situation, all things considered. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. How long do you know the answer to this? How long did it take for them to, to put out the fire from the future launch? That I don't know. What I do know is that it took them a very long time to find the cockpit section because it was so mangled. And the most amazing thing is all four of them, including survived. Dennis Fitch, yeah. survived. He actually strapped himself into the jump seat. Jump, seat. jump seat at the last second, basically. And he managed to survive, and so did the rest of the flight crew. Though all of them were very seriously injured. They were very seriously injured. They were injured. not immediately available for interview by the ntsv but another amazing thing is that actually i'm very fortunate um and he suffered pretty severe ptsd from it um dennis fitch having survived being in that jump seat would not have if he had been in the other seat because all of his surrounding seatmates had passed away and pretty much everybody did in first class because the section behind the cockpit ripped away ripped away the first class section and that is where most people died from impact, not smoke inhalation. Unlike a lot of people in the center section of the aircraft died from smoke inhalation. So actually, we will have posted a photo by the time this episode airs. Um, and it ha- it shows with a key and color coordinating um, who all passed away, who passed away from smoke inhalation, who was seriously injured, who had minor injuries, who wasn't injured at all, and which seats were unoccupied. It also shows, it's kind of hard to see, but there are asterisks on the seats with the lap infants. Um, And it shows the break points, so you can see that all of the flight crew in the cockpit were all seriously injured. Most of first class died, and those who didn't were seriously injured. No one went uninjured. In the middle section towards the front was everyone who only had minor injuries or were uninjured at all. Um, There were a couple of serious injuries and some fatalities due to smoke inhalation. Most of the fatalities were in the back of the plane because that ripped off as well. The back of the middle section was um, those that died mostly died from smoke inhalation since they were trapped. And fumes during a crash landing are extremely toxic. Yeah. Jet fuel burns very slow, but very toxically. It's very unfortunate. Uh, yeah, it is. Makes me kind of question... The contents. Yeah. What's <laughs> yeah. in the jet fuel that makes it so toxic? I mean, essentially, it? it's diesel. It's very, very, very potent. Very similar to diesel? It's very potent diesel, Jet A. Stuff that should not be inhaled. Great. Right. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. My turn. So the NTSB concluded pretty early in their analysis that the crash was not the pilot's fault by any means. In fact, if they hadn't figured out how to use asymmetric engine power, more people would have died. Douglas, the FAA, and United all considered the chance of total loss of hydraulics so remote that they didn't require learning an appropriate procedure to counter it. At most, they learned how to deal with the loss of two of three hydraulic systems. Later simulations couldn't control the situation either, so further training wouldn't have solved anything. Now, mechanically speaking, there were a couple witnesses who managed to get photographs of the plane, which we will post. 
So you can see from, albeit grainy photo, um, that there was clear damage to the horizontal stabilizers, as um, was pointed out previously. So NTSB immediately knew that this was the source of the problem, was something to do with the number two engine. Um, the wreckage confirmed this and supported what the flight crew said about all total loss of three, the three hydraulic systems. So the reason that they were only trained previously for a loss of only two is because they're all redundant. If you lose one, all those parts that were controlled by that one are controlled by another system. So you could still control, like, the ailerons if that hydraulic system went out. Unless. Unless you lose all three. All three of them go out. <laughs> and then you have control of nothing. And, and then you cry a lot. But well, no, one think, no one thought that would ever happen, so they yeah. never planned for it. Because my understanding of it is that all three systems actually ran technically in different areas of each functioning part of the airplane. Except. Except one. Except the tail. So in the tail, they all come pretty close together. And so um, what they found out had happened was the... So, to preface, engine two exploded. Yeah. Obviously, you, at yes. that point. Yeah. So that explosion had severed the hydraulics for the number one and number three systems, not number two. The number two pump, however, was attached to the engine. So when bits and pieces of that engine fell from the sky, so did the pump. Wah, wah. So that sucks. What they did find, however, in the severed hydraulic lines of one and three was titanium. Now, the only bits of the engine itself that contain titanium are the fan disc and the blades, which were not found at the crash site. Of course they weren't. Some parts were found a day after um, the crash by farm residents near Alta, Iowa, including the tail cone. um, However, the fan disc was still missing. It was recovered three months later when they started to harvest the corn. And they're like, oh, we're running over something. Gee, I wonder what that is. It's a fan blade. Turns out, I think it was GE had actually posted a reward of like $120,000 for recovering the uh, major missing part. And so the farm owners who had found it um, got the reward, and they donated half of it to charity. That's nice of them. Yeah. There's my luck. Airplane bits fell in my yard. Yeah, no kidding. Went $120,000. Anyway. So, once they actually had recovered the fan disc, they began analysis on it. In a picture we will post, uh, you can see a giant crack originating in the center of the disc. And actually, you can see a pretty substantial gap in the disc itself. That's not a missing part. That's just how much it deformed from the force of cracking. That's the whole fan disc. So, that gap that we're looking at right now. Yeah. That isn't a missing part of no, the No, that disc. is pure deformation. That's just from it being cracked. Yeah. Okay, and when you guys look at this picture, you'll see why I'm a little dumbfounded. Because it looks like there's an entire section of the entire fan blade just gone. And it's not. That's the full fan blade. It's just deformed. Mm-hmm. Pretty significant. I mean, that's, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so the crack created a bending moment, to throw in some engineering terms. The crack created a bending moment that made the disc rupture. That normally doesn't happen to titanium, which is why titanium is used in everything from airplane parts to prosthetics. Um, It's really strong. So what happened? 
Upon much closer analysis, like atomic level analysis, um, they found a defect in the inner diameter of the fan disk. So when you forge titanium, you melt it at really, really high temperatures. And at these really high temperatures, titanium is really reactive to any gas. So they do it at a vacuum. However, if it's not a secure enough vacuum for whatever reason and air gets in, titanium does react with oxygen and nitrogen, which is what it was in this case, is nitrogen. So what happened is a hard alpha defect was formed. Basically, nitrogen inserted itself into the crystal structure of the titanium in the form of an interstitial impurity. We will have a picture of what this looks like. It is from my Mechanical Behavior of Materials textbook. Getting fancy here. Throwing interstitial. In some wow, interstitial. That is a big word. So if you look at the picture, um, you can see kind of a grid made of the original atoms, which in this case is titanium. And um, it's a kind of grid. And you'll see something impure, something that's not the original substance inserted into that structure. Um, so in this case, nitrogen. Oh, it was nitrogen, not oxygen? It was nitrogen. Sorry. So basically, my understanding of this is when you have pure atoms of something, they tend to keep themselves in a very grid-like pattern, similar distance apart. With metals, yes. With metals, anyways, with pure metals. But then if you have an impurity, then basically there's an atom where it shouldn't it's be. out of the grid. It's somewhere yeah. it shouldn't be, and that starts causing a problem. Now, there are times that this is actually completely useful. They figured it out in, like, I think it was the medieval ages. Um, if you add carbon to iron, you get steel. It's good stuff. Useful. Much stronger. It's much better to have a sword made of steel than of iron. Pierce your enemy better, I guess. I don't know. Go through that chain mail. Holy crap. Yeah, exactly. Tough well, stuff. And then make chain mail. Oh, see? Oh, oh, yeah. oh. Even better. But that took a long time. However, when you make something stronger, it also becomes more brittle. Whenever you make something stronger, you have to sacrifice ductility. The nice There's thing another so, word. So, please, yeah. Please, uh... What what does that mean? There's another for word. us normal people who don't have a bachelor's <laughs> in mechanical engineering. So the opposite of ductility is brittleness. Something that's brittle is you push on it and it cracks. If you push on something that's ductile, it just deforms. So glass brittle, brittle as hell. Because you sacrifice one for the other, yay, something strong, but it'll break if you put too much force on it. Which is what happened to the fan blade. It's exactly what happened to the fan blade. Well, fan disc. My bad. The titanium was made stronger by the nitrogen, but it also made it more brittle, which is why the crack occurred. The initial crack actually occurred pretty early in the life of the fan disc and propagated over its 15,500 cycles, which, for reference, a cycle is the process of taking off and landing. So every flight is a cycle. And that plane was, what, 18 years old? It was 18 years old, and so was the engine. Yep. And it, they didn't, like, do any maintenance on it? Oh, anything? they did. Oh, they did. The crack started pretty early on, and it traveled through the hard alpha defect, which is the area that was um, contaminated by nitrogen, until it reached the area outside of it, and then it followed normal crack propagation expectations for titanium. GE, General Electric, is the maker of that particular um, engine, and at the time they employed a method of macro etching to detect such defects, and it uses acid. But this inspection was performed before the metal was molded into the fan disc, and therefore went undetected. What the hell? 
Okay. Listen. What is the point of doing the test before it's actually made into the fan disc? So because it's acid, it is slightly destructive. So you have to, like, address that. So you have to make the part bigger than it actually is. And then you use the acid to erode away at a little bit of it. So they did it in the ingot shape. So it wasn't in the final shape of the fan disc. It saved them money, basically. Of course it did. Well... Did People it. People <laughs> died, so... So, once the testing concluded, or testing concluded that the macro etching, if it had been done in the f- uh, fan disc shape, would have been detected, and this whole thing could have been avoided. See? Now, <laughs> to address Miranda's question, why didn't the United Maintenance Team find this? Analysis showed that the crack during the last inspection, which was in April of 1988... So about a year before the crash, a year and change. The crack was about um, half an inch long. So it would have been too small in previous inspections to be detected. However, um, there is evidence that the type of testing that they use, which is called fluorescent penetrant inspection, or FPI, it was used, and the inspector didn't see the crack. So they were only having one person look at this entire... Why don't you have more than one person to double-check your work? They talk about it. It'll get addressed. Great. So, the NTSB concluded that it was both the fault of the individual who performed that inspection, as well as the inspection standards that didn't have redundancy to double-check his work. Yeah, like, what you should always do whenever it's going into something that could potentially, you know, crash and kill people? I don't know. I feel like you should have better... Quality control? Yeah. Like, yeah. Look at this engine. Oh, I don't see a crack. Great. Have a supervisor check their work or something. I don't know. Sign off on it so that, like, it's like, oh, yeah, no, there's no crack there. I double checked Can it. We're confirm. good. Yeah. Yeah, no, that didn't happen. So, I'm going to read verbatim the NTSB's final probable cause. They determined that the probable cause of this accident was the inadequate consideration given to human factors limitations in the inspection and quality control procedures used by United Airlines' engine overhaul facility, which resulted in the failure to detect a fatigue crack originating from a previously undetected metallurgical defect located in a critical area of the Stage 1 fan disk that was manufactured by General Electric aircraft engines. The subsequent catastrophic disintegration of the disc resulted in the liberation of debris in a pattern of distribution with energy levels that exceeded the level of protection provided by design features of the hydraulic systems that operate the DC-10's flight controls. Would you like so, me to put this into layman's terms? Please do. Okay. So, the gist of this, and one thing that really bothers me about a lot of other programs and such that have covered this incident, is that they tend to blame the mechanics, and it is not the mechanics' fault they did the inspection. What this actually says is that there was no, basically, way, there was no tolerance for human error built into the inspection. The inspection was expected to either find it or not. And there's human error built into that inspection because it was only one person, for one, and two... I mean, the equipment that they had to use was very limited use for one person to see basically what they needed to see in this crack. And then 
when it breaks down into the part about, well, it, it exploded and all those big fancy words, that that's considered an uncontained eruption. Yeah. So these days a lot of stuff is built to contain that, although it doesn't always still. But it didn't contain the eruption of the fan blade because it was pretty significant. And it punctured everything. Obviously. Like, if any of you ever see a documentary on this or, like, watch the Air Disasters episode or whatever, uh, I think I watched Aircraft Investigations when I watched the one that I watched. They talk about how when the engine exploded, basically, that all the debris that came out of the engine from the fan blades and stuff went through the different sections of the tail. Mm-hmm. And they show that. And then it's like, well, no wonder, like, all that hydraulic fluid leaked out. Yeah. You yeah, because all the lines were severed. All the lines were severed. Yeah, it left giant multiple chunks players, in the lines. Multiple places, yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy to me that they didn't take that into account when they said that another hydraulic system, like if one went down, two would be there to run the plane, you know? Right. But all three went out. And so the gist of this was, you know, human error wasn't built into the inspection of maintenance. So yes, maintenance missed it. It was technically a mistake, but at the same time, it's because the inspection wasn't designed to find this type of crack, basically. Yeah. And it was easily missed. Although t- the titanium was manufactured poorly, like the buck stops with the maintenance facility. They should have found it. Yes, yep. all of this stuff shouldn't have happened the way it did. But ultimately it came down on United's overhaul facility. But I'll get into the uh, controversy over the titanium impurity in a little while. Yeah, you do that, because I didn't write anything about it. It's fine. Okay, so what changed in the industry? So upon finding the impurity and the titanium, the very first thing that happened was GE found all of its sister blades. There were blades made from the same titanium, and two of them failed the test, basically. Yeah. They didn't fail in the air, but they also had impurities and would have eventually cracked the same way. So, yay, we saved 600 more lives? At least. Potentially, yeah. Um, There were different expectations set up for titanium manufacturing going forward. In 1990, the Jet Engine Titanium Quality Committee, or JETQC, was put together. It was put together of all of the engine makers of planes as well as the FAA. To this day, they receive and monitor defect data from all of the melters and producers of titanium. And they share data on defects found post-melting by the engine makers. Titanium is now processed in a triple vacuum to make sure that no gaseous impurities get inside, and it's done at higher temperatures. Ultrasonic inspections were redeveloped um, and used by GE to detect future defects. Ultrasonic testing is still the preferred non-destructive inspection used by airlines as well to date. I would like to give credit to that fact to Nick's dad, who is an airline mechanic for an airline we're not going to (laughs) name. Right. Thanks, Al. Yep. 
He confirmed that for us, and the fact that they do still use the dye, as a matter of fact. They do still use the fluorescent penetrant inspection. I feel like the only reason for that is just to prove that they do the inspection at this point, because that residue stays on there, and that's how they found out they did the inspection. Yeah, so the part that had the crack was discolored with the penetrant dye, which is how they knew it was performed. So, before we go any farther... This has been stuck in my head for a little while, and I, I, I kind of need to just say something about it. So, this crack, when, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, and it's okay if you don't, but do you know how big the crack was that made the engine explode? At the time of, so, at the time of takeoff, it was half an inch. It, it was just half an inch? Yep. That's all it took. But when you start talking about that on a micro scale, I mean, they're trying to find cracks that are incredibly tiny normally, and then half an inch is really big, big in actuality. I mean, originally, like, the cracks they're trying to detect normally would be millimeters in size or less. Well, and this plane was, what, 18 years old? Mm-hmm. Yes. So why could why didn't they catch it? Even if they didn't catch it... It was too small to catch previously. They proved that. Yeah, yeah. at the time, it was too small to catch. And over, over those 18 years while it was growing, it wasn't growing to a like big visual size. Literally, it was probably only in the last couple of flights that that plane had taken that that crack grew significantly to a visual size. I don't know. I just feel like... They should have done this. Did they just do the test once, or should they have done it more than one time? They do it regularly, so it's part of what in aviation we would call a regular check. And in this case, it may have been either a specific check to the engine, or it may have actually been part of the aircraft's sea check in major aviation. That's where they literally just rip everything off of the airplane and inspect every and inspect part. every part i mean it, it's it's a big operation it usually takes a full crew you know that's running full time you have three shifts gonna take them still probably a good solid few days at least to get an airplane in and out of there probably a lot more than that and planes only make money when they're in the air so they want to minimize how much time they're spent in these overhaul facilities as much as possible yeah or just never fly a DC-10. <laughs> like, yeah, and our listeners will get to know this as we go on throughout, you know, our episodes, but... Flying in a DC-10 is sketch. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a lot of incidences in... This will be the first of many. <laughs> yeah, and there's one that we'll cover eventually where there was some sort of... uh debris that came off a plane on a runway and it caused a plane to actually explode and they were like well this could have come from a 737 or a dc-10 and me and chrissy look at each other and went it's It's a a dc-10 and it was the dc-10 so to be fair i mean this this airline this not airline this aircraft this aircraft has a reputation yeah it doesn't have a great reputation and that was built pretty quickly from when it was made. That's a whole rant I could get into sometime, and I probably won't today. But to be fair, I will give the DC-10 this. When you look at its service life compared to the number of incidents it's had, it's very similar, actually, to most aircraft. Though a lot of the ones produced today, 
including the max are pretty similar to that rate the triple seven (laughs) yeah the triple seven though generally these days has pretty much the best safety record for mechanical problems okay so back to the changes in the titanium manufacturing process so because of the jet qc i mean committee the incidences of hard alpha defects have gone down drastically. So um, between its conception at 19, in 1990 and 2007, the hard alpha defect incidences have fallen from 2 per million pounds of titanium to 0.2 per million pounds. That's significant. And those are found, so. Right. That I know of, I don't think anything has happened because of that since. No. But I'd have to read into what caused the Southwest last year. The uncontained eruption from that engine last year. Yeah. 2018. Nick's going to address the rest. I got got my mechanical bits in. Oh, right. As for changes in the industry for aircraft design, after the incident... Planes started to be designed with hydraulic fuses to isolate damaged sections and prevent a total loss of hydraulic fluid. This design was implemented on DC-10s in the number 3 hydraulic system so that even though the elevator and rudder control would be lost, they could still have control of pitch and roll. That's still pretty significant. I mean, having complete loss of control is... That's just a pilot's and a passenger's worst nightmare. I mean, imagine being in a big metal tube at... 37,000 feet going 500 miles an hour, and you have absolutely no control over it. So had this been implemented for United 232, they probably would have lived. They may have all lived, but still, I mean, what happened to be able to have that many survivors is was basically impossible. There was a team afterward that ran simulators on this constantly, basically, trying to recreate the incident in every single one of them everyone died. So for them to have had 185 survivors is insane. Is pretty unbelievable. Now, that said, the pilots and the crew had severe PTSD and they had definitely survivor's guilt to the max. And at one point actually, uh Al Haynes, the captain, he he went to a therapist and said, "Look, I have severe survivor's guilt." I feel horrible for having survived and basically brought this airplane to the ground and killed people and and the therapist said well you'll probably never get over that you just need to find a way to cope with it and he actually went on the road and for basically the rest of his life and talked about it he talked about the incidents and eventually he even came out and said that's what helped him that's how he coped with it, basically, even though he never really got over that. But what amazed me, too, is that all of those crew members went back to flying afterward. They went back to the airlines and went flew a little while longer before they, they all retired. I would be so terrified to ever fly or even be on an aircraft if I were to have been through something like that. Needless to say. I think I could be on an airplane again, but I don't think I would fly a plane again. Yeah, that's pretty rough. I mean, kudos to them, because that's a level of bravery and courage that I I can't fathom. I mean, maybe for Records in Dvorak, that's how they 
maybe that's how they managed to cope with it because they still had a lot more career ahead of them in theory. But exposure I mean, therapy to the max. Yeah, no kidding. It would have to be like I had a minor car accident. And I was scared to drive for years. Like, I didn't want to get in my car. I didn't want to go anywhere. So to be able to be in an accident like that and then be like, uh, yeah, I'm going to go fly again. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> since being in that accident with you where we rear-ended somebody, we are super conscious of it now. Well, yeah. true. Right. And I, in their case, there's nothing they could have done. Yeah. You know, that it had nothing to do with them. I know. And when that kind of stuff happens, that would freak me out. Like, I wonder how much time they spent in the simulators after that. I don't know. I know I read it somewhere. It was pretty significant. I mean, it was like constant crews like trying to recreate the incident and make well, it survivable. No. I, I mean, those pilots. Oh, those pilots. Yeah, those pilots. I mean, they. I'm sure they spent some time afterward. Uh, they had to. I mean, jumping back into a real airplane, I don't imagine you just want to like come out of a coma and like be, yeah, let's go. I'm going back in an airplane tomorrow so I can make more money to support my family. Like, Oh, thanks. It would be horrifying. Even as a job. I mean, it's it's tough, but they went back. That's pretty amazing. Kudos. Kudos. Another change that came into the industry was child restraints, because obviously that was... That worked well. ...pretty significantly uh, needed. Yeah. Yeah, you remember those four lap infants? Uh, yeah, at the time, I mean, it was literally just put them on the floor. That's what the flight crew told him. And even the flight crew, even the flight attendants were so uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I remember they interviewed someone who was a flight attendant on that flight, and she felt so bad. Like, I have to make you put your baby on the ground. Right, and that's a tough situation. Almost all of the parents lost control of them during the crash because of this. One died from smoke inhalation. Which is pretty amazing. That's the only thing that yeah. killed him. The NTSB added a safety recommendation to the FAA on its list of most wanted safety improvements in May of 1999, suggesting a requirement for children under two years old to be safely restrained, which was removed in November 2006. The accident sparked a campaign led by United Airlines Flight 232 senior flight attendant Janice Brown for all children to have seats on an aircraft though it is no longer on the most wanted list. Aircraft restraints for children under two is still a recommended practice by the NTSB and FAA, though it is not required by the FAA as of May 2016. So, NT wait, before we go on, let me try to figure out what, what you're saying there. Does that mean they don't require you to hold your child in a certain way, or... Do they actually have, like, seatbelts and stuff? Like, what? So I think what it's saying is there's no required restraints. There's no required restraints, but there's also probably no requirement to put them on the ground. No, I think, so, in my time, all, all of my history of looking at those safety cards when you go and board a plane, I think, right. I think all of them, like, you brace yourself holding yourself against the seat in front of you and you have your child in your arms. Yes. With one hand. That, and they're braced against your chest. Yeah. Yeah. More than likely, what's happened here is there was so much disagreement over the best way to do it, they basically left it to the airlines. And the, all the airlines probably have a reasonable way to do it on their safety cards. I'd have to inspect one the next time we fly. Oh, I always do. I know. Because I'm super curious. But, like, so it's still two years old and younger. Like, holding a screaming two-year-old in your arm is not the easiest thing to do. No. 
No. I feel like it personally, if I was carrying a two-year-old and a crash happened, I think I would still lose control of that child. And honestly, I think most parents these days, I mean, I know that a two-year and younger is considered a, a lap infant, but I think most people that travel with kids two years and younger, I mean, unless they're like 18 months or less, this is probably what they would actually have on their lap. I feel like a two-year-old you would probably put in a seat or even something close to that. I feel like a lot of people do. I've seen it at least where people like put... Screaming two-year-olds. Like, even like a one-year-old in the seat, they still book them a seat. All parents, please review your safety card when looking for brace positions for your child. Please do. But all this is also to remind you that aviation is way safer than it was before. Way safer than it was before. Like, this would not happen today. in a current plane. Mostly no. because 90% of planes that are in the sky don't have a engine on the tail anymore. That's a big part of it. And another part of it is we've redesigned so many things based on this. Titanium's manufactured better. Which, I'll get into that. <laughs> and, you know, the whole switch, the fuse thing with the hydraulic pumps Yeah, and now stuff. you can't lose everything. Yeah, you can't lose any, everything anymore. So when it came to the titanium incident, I thought it was really interesting. And I, I, I can't name all the stuff here because I don't remember, but and I didn't write it down. But... It's really interesting. There was a controversy over the titanium because basically when the manufacturers of the titanium send it to GE to be made into a part, a part, they send them an ingot, a little chunk of titanium, and it comes with a serial number. Well, the company that produced the titanium had multiple blocks with the same serial number. They had two, as a matter of fact. Both were sent for manufacturing the engines. And the problem was that they came from two different, uh, basically, sub-manufacturers of titanium with two different processes. And so they were actually made two different ways. And the two serial numbers made things very confusing. And one of them was proven to have impurities, and the other one was proven to be pure. There was so little documentation given with these ingots from the manufacturer of the titanium to GE that when the investigators were trying to seek this out, they couldn't get them to give them a clear answer. They were like, well, we, this is the serial number. So it must've been the pure one. It's not our fault. You know, they kept saying that and saying that and saying that. I wish you guys could see Miranda's face. I know. She's all like, what? <laughs> and it's kind of true. I mean, you think about it, I mean, if you were working for a company that had a situation like that, you'd probably be trying as hard as possible to prove that it's the pure one. You don't want to be the reason for this impurity. Horrific thing. Yeah. But ultimately, uh, eventually they found out that the titanium that was most frequently being used in uh, the building of these fan blades at GE was coming from the impure batch. Shocker! I know. And so, even though there's no proof that that's where the serial number came from, it was determined that that was so commonly the one that was used at the time, and not the pure one for the that specific fan blade, that the NTSB and the FAA agreed that it had to have been that one. And they proved that by finding the other impurities in the, the sister other blades. Fan discs. 
So what you're telling me is... Use tracking numbers. Yeah, <laughs> and like, just have better documentation. So having worked in an engineering company, things are tracked now like it's nobody's business. Like there's barcodes everywhere, no one messes that up. No, like to the bottom level of a company, no one messes that well, up. yeah, and in aviation, I mean, it's the same way. I mean, everything... I mean, in, when it comes down to even, like, tools, if a part breaks, you have to account for every single piece of that, the that broken tool so that you know if it's touched an airplane that no little piece of that is left there. That's cause it's called FOD in aviation. FOD control is incredibly important. It's foreign object damage. We try to keep that from happening as yeah. much as possible. And there's obviously a reason for that. And, I mean... Tracking things is incredibly important. When you work for a company that just makes titanium ingots, you don't probably think about, like, well, I'm, like, 80 steps away from that actually being in the sky. This couldn't possibly have anything to do with me. Turns out. But it did. Joke's on you. But it did. (laughs) And a plane crashed, and people died. So there we are. That's UA-232. In a nutshell, and this episode, I want to definitely mention that Al Haynes, the captain from this, passed away just, I think it was just two months ago, not even. August? I think it was in August. 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 We're in October here. So he's passed away back in August, and this is definitely dedicated to him and the fact that his crew resource management in the cockpit was unbelievable. It's, it's used as reference today it's in training. As, as, yep training for pilots in aviation today because he managed to keep calm in that cockpit and some of the jokes that he managed to crack while in an unbelievable situation as a pilot. I mean, you just, it's hard to wrap your head around being in an airplane and suddenly having no control over it and having to figure out how to manage the airplane and the people enough to make that thing get to the ground in an even remotely safe fashion. And to be calm and use jokes to disperse the tension among your fellow crewmates. But he managed to do that. He put everybody in a job immediately and he stuck to it. He was willing to take any advice from any of them, which prior to the 80s was almost unheard of. Captain's word was basically... Law. We will have a portion on the website where you can contact us if you want us to cover something. Um, All of the photos that we reference in this episode, as well as a few others, will be posted along with all of our sources. Yes. I got to use my textbook. I'm still really excited about that. (laughs) Very important. Always check our sources. If you want more information on this, please read into it. Find it on our website. We'll have more resources so you can read more into this and the the very interesting things that come from this. And this, this was a pretty pinnacle accident and, in aviation as well as in American history, honestly. Yeah, and remember, if you are afraid to fly, don't be. Like, this would never happen today. We just listed all of the reasons why this could not happen. Yeah. We are very confident travelers these days, and you should be too. We believe that it's a very safe, very, very safe way to travel. Agreed. Agreed. So that's UA-232 and its wholeness, and thank you, Al Haynes, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Keep Keep your speed up.
Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.